I'd like us to start our time together in prayer. And I want to guide us into some specific prayer requests. I want to pray for um, people that are recovering from Hurricane Laura. Uh, the hurricane came ashore on August the 27th, and there are still 60,000 homes and businesses without electricity. And this includes our family and friends in that area. There are 20,000 people that have still not returned to their homes. And I know Amy's family, her parents, her brother and sister-in-law and niece are directly impacted by this, as are thousands of others. So I want to lead us in a time of prayer for them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for waking us up another morning. Your mercies are new every single day. And so we pray for a fresh dose of mercy even now. We do pray especially for those that are struggling to recover in the aftermath of Hurricane Laura. Pray especially for Amy's parents and her brother. Pray for Warren and Carrie and Ruth, uh, for Mr. Walter and Miss Barbara, that your hand of protection would be on them. God, help them not to become exhausted. Help them not to become discouraged. Pray for the thousands and thousands of others that have lost so much. Uh, I pray that you would provide for their needs and even more that you would give them hope in the midst of this very difficult season. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd also like us to pray this morning for the persecuted church. As we study the book of Revelation, um, it really it really has become so evident to me how much we should learn from Christians that are being persecuted right now around the world. That is a that is a glimpse into our future. Christians in the West, Christians in North America. It's not if we experience persecution, but when. And a part of my teaching has been trying to prepare us for what the Bible says will happen and is happening right now in many parts of the world. I received, I, I saw this on social media yesterday. It's from the Christian Post. 500 Ethiopian Christians slaughtered in door-to-door -door attacks since June. At least 500 Christians have been killed in an ongoing, coordinated door-to-door -door attack and thousands of others traumatized and fleeing for their lives. This has been happening in the, uh, for the last two months in southern Ethiopia. So I want to pray for them, right? I mean, this... Uh, this is happening right now. There are Christians in Ethiopia that are being dragged out of their houses and killed in front of their families. Entire families that are being killed because they are Christian, because they refuse to renounce their faith in Christ. So I want to pray for them specifically. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father,
We pray for those in the world that are suffering. We pray for those that are being persecuted for their faith. Lord, we pray especially for these Christians in Ethiopia. Lord, those that have been killed, those that have been martyred, and then those that remain, that are that are running for their lives. These Christians that refuse to renounce their faith even unto death. Help us, Lord, to pray for them, but to also learn from them and be inspired by them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Revelation 7. Revelation 7, as we continue our series through this incredible book of the Bible, one that I have neglected for the vast majority of my Christian life up until recently, and I have repented of that neglect. As I watched the news this past week, and with the aftermath of Hurricane Laura, with the ongoing pandemic, with the fires that are raging through Oregon and California, the news often has appeared to me as apocalyptic. And that's due in part because I have been, I have immersed myself in the book of Revelation um, where I'm seeing things through a different lens through an apocalyptic lens. And we are in tribulation right now, right? In, in the early parts, in the very first chapter of the book of Revelation, John says in verse nine, I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. So John is saying that he is, experiencing tribulation himself. And he is their companion in tribulation. He's writing to churches that are experiencing persecution. He's writing to churches that are on the threshold of persecution. And he's warning them. He's preparing them. And if we don't prepare ourselves for what the Bible says will happen, then we are setting ourselves up, up to be disillusioned and defeated. But there will be a time of great tribulation that the, such that the world has never seen before. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 in his Olivet Discourse towards the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus gives us his eschatology. And the book of Revelation is really just an amplified version of Matthew chapter 24. So keep that in mind. And we're going to pick up here in the last part of chapter 6 and then read chapter 7 together. And I want us to lean into God's word to tune in to God's word and to receive from God's word. We're going to start reading in chapter 6, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Verse 17, 
for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on, the tr on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tri tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This week we get an apocalyptic reprieve. <laughs> Last Sunday was heavy. It was intentionally heavy. It was a sermon on the first seals that were opened, which initiated a series of cosmic catastrophes. Great earthquakes, asteroids hitting the earth, super volcanoes erupting, tsunamis, these unprecedented disasters wreak havoc and cause mass hysteria. And then we come to chapter 7. Chapter 7. But we have, to, we, ha we have to take chapter 7 in context of what we just read. 
For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? That's the question that chapter 7 is seeking to answer. Who can withstand the wrath of the Lamb? You have all of these great people, the greatest people on the planet that are running for their lives. They are hiding. And, and some commentators uh, see this as these underground bunkers. You have these people with resources that are hiding in underground bunkers, running from the wrath of the Lamb. And we... We come to chapter 7. Who can withstand this wrath? We get a break from the tribulation, and it's, it's an unfortunate chapter break here. It interrupts the flow of thought. Remember, the original did not include chapters and verses. It was meant to be read as a letter. It was meant to be received as one as, as one message, different parts to the one message. It was meant to be read uninterrupted. Chapter 7 is this interlude, an apocalyptic parentheses. We have these series of seals that are broken in chapter 6, and then we have a pause in chapter 7. The seventh seal isn't broken until chapter 8. So what's happening here in chapter 7? What's going on in this section of the book of Revelation? We have an angel with a seal. And this angel is sealing the servants of God. Now what is up with this seal? When you, when you look at the whole story of Revelation, the whole message of Revelation, we find over in chapter 13... That, again, remember this principle, what, what, God, what God creates, Satan counterfeits. And so you have, you have the Christ and the Antichrist, right? And you have the seal that God puts on his servants, and then you have a seal that, the, that Satan puts on his servants. It's called the mark of the beast in Revelation 13. Now, in, back to Revelation 7, I mean, but these two are, are, are two are different sides of the, of the same coin. And so this seal that, that the angel is putting on the forehead of the servants of God is not visible. This is not a, a brand. Have you ever seen a Western where they're branding cattle. That's the image that we have here, but it's a spiritual branding, not a tangible branding. It's not a physical mark that God, that this angel is putting on the forehead of the servants of God. It, that they're being marked out spiritually. And so this mark is visible in the spiritual world, but it's, it's not visible in the physical world through our physical senses. Same thing is true, I believe, with the mark of the beast in chapter 13. This seal, and we come across this seal. What does it mean to be sealed, right? I, 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 
I've been wanting a, um, what do you call it? Where I have cards that I write to people and then I, I put this seal on the outside of the envelope, on the, on the back side of the envelope where you close it, you have this wax and then you press your seal into the wax. And what a seal is in the Bible and what it, what it is in history is a mark of ownership. And it's also a sign of protection. It's a sign of ownership, right? A signet ring where I place my mark on this letter, on this scroll. I place, I place my mark on this property and it signifies ownership. So when God is taking his signet ring and he is marking his servants in the same way that a, that a signet ring makes an impression in the wax. That's God marking us and meaning that we belong to him, that we belong to him. And this happens for every Christian through the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, verse 11, In him you were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him, who works out everything in conformity with his purpose, with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope, put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So what happens? Every Christian is sealed by God through his spirit at conversion when we are saved. And that Holy Spirit is a deposit that God makes in our lives that guarantees our destiny as his children, as sons and daughters of God. And so this seal in Revelation 7 is not a new concept. There's nothing in the book of Revelation that is, that is ultimately new. Right? We've already talked about how there's over 600 references and allusions to Old Testament passages. There, there's nothing new. God is just reiterating things that he's already revealed through the prophets and through the apostles. The sealing happens before any seal is broken. <laughs> Stick with me here. So Revelation is not chronological. What we have here is this angel, right, that says, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So we, 
this apocalyptic parentheses that takes us back to the beginning of chapter six, before the four horsemen of the apocalypse are unleashed. God's servants are sealed. He's, they're sealed. And we'll find this throughout the rest of the book of Revelation that there's not a strict chronological order. It's, it's the same event seen from different vantage points. It's like watching a football game. And there's multiple cameras that are capturing that are capturing different parts of the game simultaneously, and we're it's cutting to different camera shots. It's revelation cuts to different camera camera angles at different points in the game. So who are these 144,000? <laughs> now, before I get into this part, let me say this that eschatology is an open-handed topic. What do I mean by that? You have closed-handed convictions. And now the things in the closed hands are doctrines that we have to believe in order to be a Christian. These are the core convictions of Christianity. These are the essential ingredients of the gospel, right? So that's the closed hand when it comes to Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, when it comes to the sacrificial atoning death of Jesus, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, when it comes to the return of Jesus. And then you have the open hand, right? And there's lots of things in the open hand. Things that convictional Christians can have legitimate disagreements on. And eschatology is in the open hand. Right? Now, what's in the closed hand is that Jesus will return. Right? Now, how that gets expressed as far as when that happens, what that looks like. I mean, so you have premillennial eschatology, you have amillennial eschatology, you have postmillennial eschatology, and then within the premillennial camp, you have historic premillennialism, you have dispensational premillennialism. <laughs> what? I mean, come on now. Let me remind us that the majority of Christians don't know what I just said. They don't understand what I just said. Right? I have a seminary degree. I have a graduate degree in theology. <laughs> and, so, and I struggle to understand these things. And so when we, when we get bogged down in the weeds of the minutia of eschatology. We miss the point. We miss the point of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation was not written for people in Bible college. The book of Revelation was not written for people in seminary. The book of Revelation was not written for spiritual specialists. 
The book of Revelation was written to regular Christians. It was written, remember, those seven churches that received the original letter. These are regular Christians that are struggling day to day. You see the struggles in those seven churches. Very significant, serious struggles they were having. And so to back up and see the bigger picture, and before I attempt to answer the question of who are these 144,000 in Revelation 7, keep in mind that this is an open-handed issue. And keep in mind that a lot of us that have been connected to church already have a eschatology even if we don't know it. That we, there's been a certain, there's been a certain eschatology downloaded into our lives. And this has happened maybe not so much through specific teaching, even though many of you might have studied the book of Revelation before or studied the book of Daniel before. And maybe you've done a personal study. Maybe you've um, been with a pastor that preached through these books. But even if you haven't, you've absorbed a certain belief about the end times. And it's this, within evangelical churches in the last 40 years, there, the dominant position is dispensational premillennialism. And really within the last 100 years, and that is the new kid on the block. That position is the new kid on the block historically, right? So you have historic premillennialism, which is what many of the church fathers believed. And for a long time, that's the position that the church held. And just in the last hundred years or so, has the dispensational premillennial group has stepped out onto the stage of eschatology. And so keep this in mind, right? Because I'm I'm about to slay a sacred cow. We're about to have a barbecue today because I feel like I'm going to slay a sacred cow when it comes to what you believe, even if you don't have a label for it. Most of you, most of us are dispensational premillennialists even if you didn't know it. And by the way, that's due in part to the success of a series of books called Left Behind. Uh, It also got turned into a series of movies. But it's been so popular, right? The pendulum has swung where the church for... (laughs) for... You know, for 1,700 years, the church believed, for the most part, you know, historic premillennialism. That's why it's called historic premillennialism. And then in the, in the late 19th century, all of a sudden, this new concept of dispensational premillennialism came to the surface. And now many have grabbed a hold of this. And they don't even realize that this isn't something that the church has always believed. And so it even comes to the point of of breaking fellowship. 
And eschatology should, in my opinion, eschatology, again, is the open-handed issue. You don't break fellowship over differing views of the end times, in my opinion. So who are these 144,000? I do not think that these 144,000 are ethnic Jews. And I know if you take it for face value, it seems like that's the obvious, that's the obvious interpretation. But remember the genre of literature that we are studying. It is apocalyptic literature. And so you are not to take it literally, right? So for the rest of, this is, a, again, go back to my introductory sermon on the book of Revelation, where you it's a different operating system when it comes to interpreting apocalyptic literature as opposed to the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible, we are to take it literally unless it's obvious that we're not to take it literally, unless it's explicitly communicated. But in apocalyptic literature, you are to take it symbolically. And this is what's happening here, I believe, in Revelation chapter 7. And let me give you a couple reasons why. That I don't believe this 144,000. So the dispensational premillennialist group would say that this is, that they would say that the church is raptured before the great tribulation ever begins. And the 144,000 are ethnic Jews that become evangelists. But I don't believe that's really what this passage is teaching. You have to remember now that numbers are typically symbolic. And this number of 144,000 should cause us to pause. That's one of those eyebrow-raising numbers. It kind of makes you go, hmm. I mean, it's not 140,000. It's not 145,000. It's not 150,000. It's 144,000, which is strangely specific. And then you have the 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. So what's going on here? I believe these numbers are communicating something symbolic in the same way that in Revelation chapter 5, we saw a lamb, we saw a slain lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. That wasn't literal. I don't think that there's an actual lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. I believe these numbers, these images were communicating something. That's the way apocalyptic literature works. So it the seven eyes communicated this omniscience, this perfect knowledge, and the seven horns communicated omnipotence, this perfect power. In the same way, I believe this number, 144,000, is communicating something that isn't literal. This is an interesting list, by the way. When you drill down into this genealogy here, and that's really what it is, it, you won't find, this is a unique list. It's not found anywhere else in the Bible, right? You have the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob in lots of places, 
And they're different, right? They're not the same in all these different places, but this list is biblically unique. And so there's a question mark there for the student of scripture. Like, what's going on here? From the tribe of Judah, wait, wait, wait. Judah should not be first, right? He's, he's not the firstborn. This is odd. And anything that is odd should cause the student of scripture to pause and say, what's going on here then? Because this is not a mistake. This is not some haphazard list. This is Jesus giving us this through the apostle John. Judah is the tribe from which Jesus descends from. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Therefore, that's why he is mentioned first. There's an entire tribe missing. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but Dan is absent. And again, God doesn't forget Dan. God deletes Dan. What's going on here? He is replaced with Manasseh. And again, this is interesting. When you break it down, when you slow, like you got to put the transmission in four low. And you're crawling through the books of the Bible, right? I've never been on a tractor during harvest time, but I'm assuming you can't go 60 kilometers an hour when you're harvesting. You got to go slow in order to get the in order to get the fruit and the same thing is true for the student of scripture he's replaced dan is deleted and he's replaced by manasseh who is one of joseph's sons joseph marries an egyptian woman and so his kids are half breeds i know that sounds offensive and but for the jewish person this is a big deal, right? It, it would be preferable in the eyes of a Orthodox Jew to be fully Gentile than half Jew, half Gentile. That's why the Jews had such, Jews had such this hatred for Samaritans because they were, they were a mixture. They were considered this half breed, this hybrid. And so for God, for Jesus to include Manasseh in this list is significant. If you go back here to Genesis chapter 30, I just want you to find some hope here, right? I read this backstory, right? And this is a messed up family, <laughs> This is a, a, a messed up family with some serious dysfunction, right? These other, these other names here, right? To, to cross-reference, right? To say, who are these? Who are these guys, right? It's significant, right? If you go back to Genesis chapter 30, you see, again, this is the family that God chose to use. So he can use this family. There's hope for us all. 
So Jacob, Jacob marries Rachel and Leah. And this is such a heartbreaking situation here because Jacob loved Rachel and resented Leah. And there's a long backstory there where Rachel and his father-in-law was super shady, right? So he, Jacob worked seven years and he was supposed to marry Rachel, but instead his father-in-law did a switcheroo on the wedding night and Jacob woke up the next day and it wasn't Rachel in his bed, it was Leah. And so Leah, the overlooked, Leah, the rejected, um, and then he worked seven more years and married Rachel, and Rachel was his obvious choice and his favorite, and Leah was the third wheel in this family. But it, sa it says here, Jacob became angry with Rachel because she wasn't having children. Then Rachel said, sleep with Bilhah, my servant, sleep with her so that I can bear, so that she can bear children for me and I can build a family through her. So she gave, so she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and has given me a son. And because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, I've had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. So she named him Naphtali or Naphtali. Again, that should sound familiar because we just read that name in Revelation 7. And Naphtali is the bastard son of Jacob. That is harsh, but I really want us to understand the how important it is that these particular names are included in this genealogy in Revelation 7. And anyway, you can read the rest of it for yourself there. And But this is a dysfunctional family. This list has some unlikely people in it in Revelation 7. And it's it's the inclusion of the outcast in God's kingdom. So John, John heard a number. He says this right here. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. And then in verse 9, and then he saw... So he heard the number, 144,000, and then he saw a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So 144,000, again, there's no, there's no verse breaks in the original. There's no section breaks in the original. So we have a, in my Bible, I have a break after verse 8 and then a new paragraph in verse 9. That's not original. That's not inspired. 
And so the 144,000 in my mind is a direct connect. There's this flow of thought from John hearing and then John seeing the 144,000 is the great multitude that no one can number. And we come across this 144,000 again in chapter 14. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like the, a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. He's not talking about one particular ethnic group, one particular people group. This 144,000 comes from every nation, every tribe. Every tongue. Salvation is from the Jews, but it's not for the Jews. We see in Revelation 7 the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 30. At the very beginning, when God elected Abraham, not because Abraham was worthy of election, but by God's providence, he chose Abraham. By God's grace, he chose Abraham. And what was the, what was the ultimate, what was the end game of God choosing Abraham? I will make, this is Genesis chapter 12. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And here it is. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so God in choosing Abraham had a global game plan. And he says it again. He says multiple times in the book of Revelation. He says, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. Your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. Innumerable. Look at this. In Revelation 7, 9. And I looked and there before me was a great multitude. Listen that no one could count. Can you count the dust of the earth? Can you pick up a handful of sand at the beach and count every grain of sand? So God told Abraham, I'm going to choose you. And remember, Abraham had Isaac. Isaac is the son of promise. Isaac had Jacob. God, Jacob wrestled with God and God changed his name to Israel. But Abraham is the ultimate patriarch. And in choosing Abraham, God said that ultimately the entire planet is going to be blessed through you. How does that happen? The ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise happens through Jesus Christ. God Ultimately, the final fulfillment of the old covenant in Christ Jesus. And this fulfillment changes everything. 
The church is not a prophetic interruption. The church is the fulfillment of the old covenant. In 1 Corinthians, I mean, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians, oh man, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. Listen, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. And let me go on, let me keep reading. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. We've already read that part. But every promise is yes. What promises is he referring to? The Bible the Apostle Paul had, the only Bible he had was the Old Testament. And he's writing to a group of Gentiles in the church in Corinth. And he said, every promise that God has made is yes in Christ Jesus. The, this ultimate final fulfillment changes everything. Because of the gospel, what counts is not a particular ethnicity, but a changed heart. Let me go back. Romans chapter 2, verse 28. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who, who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. John Piper says, Jews who reject Jesus as their Messiah and Savior forfeit their promises forfeit their promises as Jews, and Gentiles who accept Jesus as their Messiah and Savior become heirs of those promises. Christians are now children of Abraham through faith in Christ. I'm trying to connect all the dots here for us, right? Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. If you want to write these references down, you can go back later and read them again. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Christians are now children of Abraham through faith in Christ. Paul goes on in the book of Romans to unpack this in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And he says that Gentiles are grafted in to the Jewish root system. And so now we, through Christ, and that grafting happens through the Holy Spirit, 
right? We have this root system of the Old Testament. We have this root system of the Jewish people, but we now have full access to everything that went on before us. It's not partial access to the promises of God. We are fully grafted in and we are now the people of God through Christ Jesus. Gentiles are not second-class citizens in God's kingdom. In Ephesians chapter 2, in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, therefore, Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Whoa, it doesn't get much clearer than that. Jesus changes everything. Jesus is the final fulfillment of the old covenant. As we go on back to Revelation chapter 7, we see this here this beautiful picture of a global revival. <laughs> I'm not talking thousands here. The Bible isn't talking millions here. The Bible is talking, when the Bible says something is innumerable, that's a lot. I mean, we're talking billions, if not trillions of people, billions of people that are being saved. And they're coming out of the tribulation. They're not saved from tribulation, but they're saved from condemnation. Right? In, in chapter 7 here, he talks about this beautiful picture of worship. And he says, never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So when he's saying this, there's this implication that these people were hungry and they were thirsty and they were scorched by the sun and they were weeping. And so there's a radical shift in their circumstances. So I don't believe the Bible teaches in a pre-tribulation secret rapture of the church. Again, that's dispensational premillennialism that we have absorbed over the last 
hundred years. And I, what I want us to do is this, and that might be where you land. The, the, there are incredibly solid students of scripture, people that I respect, people that I learn from, that are dispensational premillennialists. But I want it to be the Spirit of God through the Word of God that shapes our convictions to always ask the question, what does the Bible say? And to go there for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Like here, even in the midst of this study of the book of Revelation, God has been deconstructing my convictions and reshaping my eschatology around the study of Scripture. As you connect the dots from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and what is God ultimately teaching us? It's the Spirit of God that illuminates the Word of God. And so I don't believe that the Christians are going to be raptured out. I believe the Christians, I believe, and again, the book of Revelation is just an amplified version of Matthew 24. Those who persevere to the end will be saved, that there will be a time of testing. There will be a great apostasy. Because of the, because of the increased hostility towards authentic Christianity, those that don't truly believe will fall away. They will have a form of godliness but deny its power. But God will have a witness there's going to be a global revival, and it comes from the, the, the tribulation saints. The same thing that happened in the early church. The revival that happened that swept across the globe was fueled by the blood of the martyrs, by the sacrifice of the saints. And, and this is present tense for people in Ethiopia. This is present tense for people in Nigeria. This is present tense for people in the Middle East. This is present tense for Christians in China. I believe it in some ways, the pre-tribulation rapture of the church is an expression of this North American exceptionalism where we think that we're going to somehow be the exception to, to God's people in the Bible and to God's people globally. So we think that we're going to somehow be the exception and escape suffering, and that would make us the biblical exception, that would make us the historical exception, and that would make us the contemporary exception. We are going to persevere and our faith is going to be refined and there's going to be this correlation, this correlation in intensity as Satan unleashes his hatred upon the body of Christ in the same way that he unleashed his hatred on the actual body of Christ 2,000 years ago, he's going to unleash that hatred of hell, that demonic hatred upon the body of Christ. 
And what happened to Jesus is going to happen to us. And there's going to be this correlating intensity, this intensity of demonic activity and this correlating intensity of divine activity. So there's going to be revival that's breaking out in the midst of tribulation. And it's going to be the saints that are testifying to the truth of the gospel by their willingness to suffer and sacrifice, even unto death. It's going to be the two witnesses. We come across this in chapter 11. These two witnesses that God is going to send that are going to do signs and wonders. They're going to be murdered and then resurrected. And, there's, and the world will be watching. There's going to be an angel. Like look, in chapter 13, there's going to be an angel flying around that has the eternal gospel, proclaiming the eternal gospel to those who live on the earth. The angels are going to be preaching the gospel. The two witnesses are going to be preaching the gospel. The tribulation saints are going to be preaching the gospel. And that means that the lamb is giving every possible opportunity to repent and be saved before the final judgment. Don't miss what God is doing in the book of Revelation. Don't get bogged down in these debates over our fine point, the finer points of the eschatology. I believe that's a part of studying it, but I don't want to miss the main point. I don't want to major on the minors. I don't want to be debating amongst ourselves about if we're historic premillennialist or dispensational premillennialist or amillennialist when when the majority of Christians are are just struggling to survive when the lost world the, the majority of the church doesn't know what what that those words mean right where they're just doing their best to live out their faith day by day and you have these these preachers that are debating things while while the sheep are lost. The lost world definitely doesn't care about our theological debates that happen within these ivory towers. They just need to know the gospel. That's the main thing. That's the main course of Christianity, Jesus. And you see here this this beautiful picture of of what's going to happen. The, The Bible in the book of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and this is the application, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Listen, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such treatment from sinful men so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. For the joy set before him endured the cross. And what the book of Revelation does is it gives us 
the promise of God of this guaranteed future for every kingdom person. And so for the joy set before us, we endure, we take up our cross for the joy set before us. And so today I want us to lift our eyes from the circumstance and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And that is the source of our joy. Jesus. That will be what fuels our perseverance through tribulation. As Stephen was being murdered, he looked up and he saw Jesus. And if someday we are called to make that ultimate sacrifice, we'll see the same thing Stephen saw. And seeing Jesus allows us to endure any heartache, any struggle. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for Revelation 7 and this multitude from around the world, from every tribe, every nation, every language Lord, that are gathered in one place. Lord, help us that's your kingdom. That is your kingdom. And help us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so help us as kingdom citizens, as kingdom people to reflect that reality now in how we interact with different people of different ethnicities. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for giving us every possible opportunity. And right now is one of those opportunities. Lord, to repent and be saved. Your word says if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So help us not to wait. Help us to not become so distracted by our circumstance that we miss the mercy of the Lamb. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of salvation. So help us, Lord, to look to you and to not put our eyes on the storms around us, to not put our eyes on the unrest swirling around us and within us and be filled with fear and anxiety but to fix our eyes on you. And in doing so, unleash joy in our hearts 
and peace in our minds. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. If you're looking for ways to connect, find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just check out the show notes for details. Thank you for tuning in. I hope and pray that this has been a blessing in your life. And I hope that you'll continue the conversation with God by opening his word for yourself. Love y'all.